Hello and welcome to another episode of the E-Reads Podcast. My name is Liz and I'm your host and this is my podcast where I talk about books, authorship, and all the different parts of the creative process. Today I have Dr. Allen with me and he is a professor of ecotoxicology and he breaks down what that is as well as how authors can mix science and fiction to create their stories. So whether you are a reader that's into sci-fi or an author looking to blend these two worlds, you will not want to miss this episode. So now that you know a little bit about Dr. Allen, let's jump right into the episode. All right, welcome, Alan. I am very excited to have you come and talk. Um, you have a very interesting um, job. You talk about uh, poisons, but more specifically, you are the professor of ecotoxology? Toxicology, yeah. Good morning, Liz. How Good are you? Good morning. So what is that, first of all? Can you tell us what is ecotoxicology? Yeah, ecotoxicology is effectively, well, Toxicology is the uh, study of toxic compounds. So, so effectively poisons, or um, you're probably aware of the recent uh, train derailment in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, the release of that uh, of those chemicals and the release of the smoke when they burned the vinyl chloride that was in one of the cars. Um, all of that would fall under toxicology. Ecotoxicology is taking that um that field of study and effectively putting it in the environment so as opposed to having it in like a hospital mm -hmm. setting you would actually have it in the environment interesting and in exploring all of that so i'd like to start with like a bookish related question and so i kind of thought about um in, in regards to all of your experience and things is there a particular poison toxin that you find most fascinating or interesting? <laughs> that's a great, that's a great question. And of course, uh, of course I do. And, um, and so let me, let me ask you a question. Per perfect. Right? I mean, if, if you think about toxic chemicals, mm -hmm. right, which I'm sure you probably never do, but if you think about toxic chemicals, toxic chemicals can kill you. Right. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, however, what is a fate worse than death? Now, that's a that's a uh, that's a uh, a loaded question. Um, but but uh, I think a fate worse than death is if a chemical can alter who you are without you um, being able to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So in, in a way, kind of like a zombie apocalypse, right? Like, right. Um, uh, what was that show that was that that went for years about zombies that was on TV? I forget the The Walking uh, Dead. Yeah, Walking Dead. Right. It. It. Right. Uh, um, I loved the first few years of that show, um, but then I thought it got a little old. But that's the. But that's besides the point. But the the interesting thing is, um, if, if the interesting thing is, there are chemicals compounds that actually do that that can actually change your behavior to where you're in your body and you're doing things and you can't help yourself from doing that. And that's what, I, I find that to be the most interesting class of toxic chemicals. And that's actually what my book that we're here to talk about today is all about. So, yeah. 
See, I knew that'd be a great question for you because that already sounds like <laughs> so many good book ideas. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And actually, um, you may have heard of um, the disease called mad cow disease. Yeah. And, and mad cow disease is effectively um, and, and a, um, uh, uh, an abnormality that these cattle suffer from where there is a chemical in their brain, a protein. And if the chemical is in one structure, mm -hmm. one three-dimensional structure, everything's completely fine. So it's a, it's a um, chemical that all these cattle have in their brain all the time. In one structure, it's fine. But if it bends and forms a different structure, um, the cows suffer effectively um, the equivalent of Alzheimer's disease for, for cattle. Right. Now, the other kind of interesting thing about mad cow disease is it just doesn't happen in cows. It can happen in people. In people, it's called Jacob Kruschfeld disease, but it's the same thing. And what makes it even more interesting is that it can be transferred from cattle if you were to, and I know this doesn't sound very savory, but if you were to eat the brain of a, a cow mm -hmm. that had mad cow disease, you as a person would wind up with the equivalent of Jacob Kruschfeld disease from eating that material. So it's transferable across species, which is, which is really, really both terrifying and really interesting from the perspective of, um, of uh, a science fiction story. Right? Yes, very really. much so. There is a, I'm, I just want to read this to you Please. just for a second here. Um, there was uh, a number of years ago in US, USA Today, there was a story regarding mad cow disease. Mm -hmm. And the dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, um, whose name happens to be Dr. Michael uh, Osterholm, he wrote about mad cow disease and about this Jacob Kruzfeld disease. These, these proteins are called prions. Okay. And he wrote about prions and said, if Stephen King could write an infectious disease novel, he'd write about prions. So after I read his USA Today, um, uh, read, read this article, I wrote him and I said, I'm no, I'm no um, um, Stephen King, but I've written that book. I wrote that science fiction story about prions, which is, a, which is what my story uh, twist is all about. Oh my goodness. So in twist came after your first book, which was uh, uh, nonfiction. Is that correct? That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So how did you go? And so for listeners, if you don't know, well, first tell us about the first book that you wrote. Yeah. The, I, I was, uh, at the time I was writing my first book, which is called Modern Poisons. Uh, I had been a professor of toxicology for about 20 years. And there are, were some consistent, um, uh, inaccuracies, some things that people thought that just weren't true. And, and it wasn't just the lay public, but it was lay public up to professional scientists. There were some things that they thought that, that just weren't the case and relatively elementary things as well. So I, I really felt compelled to write a book that kind of laid some of that to rest and kind of just kind of um, set out in a uh, very, in a, in a way, elementary fashion in plain language, 
this is kind of where we are today relative to um, toxic chemicals and our understanding of toxicity. Right. So that's kind of where it came from. Interesting. And in, in, in reading the description and the reviews, it appears this comes off pretty like easy to read for the average person. Is, is that about right? It, it is. And, and the reason for that is when I was uh, a graduate student back in my 20s, there were a number of books at the time that um, were really influential in my professional development. And you might think that I'm talking about some, you know, uh, some gigantic, you know, 300 page <laughs> book that costs $150. And they weren't. These were these were paperbacks written by scientists, which were taking fundamentals of things like ecology and boiling them down and making them really simple for mm -hmm. the uh, lay, lay audience. These, these uh, books generally followed a trajectory of having about 20 chapters. Mm -hmm. Each chapter would be about 10 pages long, so they were really easy to read. Mm -hmm. Each chapter kind of fit a uh, fundamental axiom within the field that they, they were uh, focused on. And, and I found that those books were the most important books in my career, mm -hmm. and there wasn't a book like that for toxicology. So that's that's why I wrote Modern Poisons was to do that. Oh, I love that definition because like on Amazon, it, it has it classified like as a, a textbook, but it's nice. Uh, your description makes it seem like um, like not scary. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like you could pick this up. Um, and uh, so writers, you definitely, I'm sure, can find some interesting tools from from this, the, your your novel, the, your, your yeah. story. Yeah. And I, I, I want to read you a piece out of Modern Poisons, uh, nonfiction, and, um, uh, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's this. And before I read this, I just want to set the stage that, uh, as I was saying, in Modern Poisons, I wanted to follow my, um, uh, my mentors, these people that had written these books. So I wanted a book that was about 20 chapters. Mm -hmm. about 10, 10 pages per chapter. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing it, I, I kind of, towards the end, I sort of was running out of material. And I started thinking about this idea of, if you think about like, like the Ohio uh, derailment, the principal chemical involved there is a chemical called vinyl chloride. It's not important, but that's its name. Uh, that chemical's small. It's two carbons and then a couple of other um, um, atoms around it. It's it's a small it's a small chemical. Okay. But then if you start building chemicals larger and larger and larger and larger, you can get to things that are um, you can get to the point where the chemical becomes so large mm -hmm. that like you get to something like the COVID virus. Right. Right. The COVID virus, if you break open the shell, and we all know what the shell looks like because we've seen it so many times in the last three years. If you break open that shell, there's a piece of what's known as RNA inside. And, and this is just a really long piece of genetic material that's millions of atoms in length, right? So if you compare it to vinyl chloride, it's just a few atoms. The RNA is this massive, you know, millions of atoms. So I started thinking about this question of when does a chemical, how big does a chemical chemical have to get to where it's no longer a chemical. It starts mm -hmm. to become a biological. 
right? right. It, where's that jump between chemistry and biology? So, so relative to that, now with that kind of setting the stage, let me yeah. read you a little piece. Let me read you a little piece out of Modern Poisons. Um, <clears throat> so, so here it is. Uh, however, in some cases, the toxic compound is less well-defined and its occurrence is more, is, is more accidental. As an example, consider prions. Prions are proteins that can be folded in different ways, including a normal configuration that's harmless okay. and, and an abnormal configuration that causes disease. Okay. The proteins have, uh, have this, the, those two proteins have the same exact amino acid sequence. The, the atoms are all the same, but they fold different. Uh, so it's like origami, right? You you fold the paper one way, you get a you get a swan. You fold right. it another way, you get a little pig, right? It's just how it's folded. Uh, so they fold differently. Furthermore, the infectious protein and the prion, and this is all true. This is out of my nonfiction book. Okay. The infectious protein has the ability of when an infectious molecule meets a non-infectious molecule, and they bump together. Who wins? The infectious one. It causes the non-infectious one to have the bad bend and become toxic. I when when uh, and okay. I'm, uh, yeah. So furthermore, the the infectious protein has the ability to convert normal proteins into infectious ones, and as such, the pro the prions are self-replicating. They produce versions of themselves. The infectious ones. Yeah. So when I wrote that, you know, and, and this is, again, this is all true. I thought, wow, that is just an incredible field ripe for a science fiction novel, right? So that, that's where the idea for Twist came from. Okay, so the idea's there, right? You have the content. How do you get writing? How did that start for you? Well, uh, first of all, for, for Fiction, as, as you've already said, Liz, I come out of a, an, an, a scientific academic background. So fiction is a new field for me. Um, but in fiction, um, what I found was that, um, I, I effectively, as silly as this sounds, what I found is that I would, I would think of scenes and then I would just, and I would like literally visualize in my head the scene, like a scene out of a movie. And then I think, okay, well, now I've got to write that down, right? So now I've got to write down the scene that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how, and really what the book winds up being is 20, 30 of those scenes, right? Kind of, or maybe a hundred of those scenes, whatever it is, kind of put together into a, into a storyline. So Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, so I found that my writing style was, first of all, I'd be walking the dog or drinking coffee or whatever. And one of these scenes would pop in my head and I'd think, oh man, I have to write that down. <laughs> I'd, I'd write that down. And, and then I also just spent an hour a day, every single day writing. 
Some days I'd spend an hour just looking at my, you know, blank computer screen and not write a word. Other days I'd write, you know, a thousand words or something. So it was part of it was um, this kind of celestial inspiration. And the other part was just persistence, <laughs> you know, just, just doing it day after day after day. So that's kind of where it came from. Interesting. And so having the, the science background, how did you balance between how much science and how much fiction to put in there? Was that an easy fit, you know, thing to figure out? Was it a hard struggle? Well, that's, that's actually a great question. And um, so let me just back away from that just, mm -hmm. just for a second in that, you know, you can, you can kind of ask the question, and this may have been one of the questions that we would get to, but so I'll answer it now. It's like, where does science fiction fall and where does fantasy fall? And, and mm -hmm. how do those two play against each other? Right. And there's a, there's a great quote and it's been quoted, it's been attributed to a number of different people, but the quote is that fantasy makes the impossible possible. So if you think of things like um, um, Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. right? Where you have dragons and you've got um, these, the, you have dragons, right? Well, clearly, and you've got these fly, giant flying reptiles. That, that's not going to happen. That, that's, that, that's just not possible. And, and that's okay. But it, what, what Game of Thrones did so incredibly well is it took something that wasn't possible and made it believable. That's fantasy. Uh, and and that's, that's one genre. Science fiction, on the other hand, makes the improbable plausible. So you think of something like Jurassic Park, In, <laughs> right? In Jurassic Park, they went through great lengths to convince you that that science was possible. And if you remember the movie, the first half an hour of the movie is kind of backstory about how you can get DNA out of a mosquito and yep. put it into a frog and do all that stuff. So they spend a lot of time trying to generate the plausibility. Now, interestingly with Jurassic Park, that's much closer to scientific reality than a lot of people are probably aware of. Because right. um, I don't know, Liz, if you're aware of this or not, but there are movements today to reconstitute extinct species. I have and seen that and I thought that was fantasy. I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Now, most of the things that they're reconstituting are things like passenger pigeons, or there was a, a, a marsupial wolf in Australia, the thylacine that they're thinking of tr trying to bring back, and, and, and there are others. So, so there are things that just went extinct in the last few decades. But what's also kind of cool is they're also thinking of bringing back mastodons. Now, mastodons haven't been around for about 5,000 years. So they're, 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 they've, been, they've been extinct for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So we can't go back and bring back a T-Rex from 100 million years ago, but we can go back, we can go to the, um, to the, to the North Pole, to the, to the Arctic. Uh, they find frozen mastodons uh, fairly frequently we can thaw those things out and actually get gen, uh, genetic material from those animals. Mm -hmm. And they are now looking at reconstituting that into a, it won't be exactly a, a, a mastodon or a mammoth, but it'll be a cross between 
those historical animals and effectively Asian elephants, because you have to use some currently existing animal as like the base pattern, and then you can apply the genetics to it. Kind of like in Jurassic Park, where they were applying dinosaur DNA into, fro into living frogs, right? Same kind mm -hmm. of thing. But that's actually not science fiction. That's real. And I mean, that's really happening today. And, uh, and, and I find that, I find that place where, as a scientist, I find that place where science abuts up against science fiction. So as you were saying before, you can read something in the paper, you just, you're sitting there just thinking, is that real? Is that, is that really happening? <laughs> and yeah, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Oh my gosh. And so with all of that, how did you decide how much of that to put in your story? Did you want to be heavy on the science? Did you like, what was your process like? I, I did want to be heavy on the science. And, and I thought for a long time about how to do that because I didn't want to write a textbook. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't want to write a light textbook like Modern Poisons, where it's, a t uh, it's, it's still a textbook, but it's a textbook that a high school student could read and, and understand 85% of what's there. I didn't want to write that. This was supposed to be fun and this was supposed to be, um, it, it was supposed to be in the genre of science fiction, not in the genre of, you know, lay science. So, mm -hmm. so I struggled with that, but I also wanted, uh, I wanted to do two things. I, I wanted to stay true to the science as closely as possible without making it boring. Right. And, and so what I, what I, what I ultimately did was um, I, I evoked a um, page out of um, the, the novel 1984, um, Huxley's novel 1984, in which he has a book inside his book. So I have my protagonist who happens to be an academic scientist. He's writing a book for, um, for K-12. He's writing a science book for ninth graders. So, uh, so and I have a, a piece of his book for ninth graders in the book. So it's, it's almost like you're in the, the fiction story. And for, for a moment, you can pop out of the fiction story, pop into this book for ninth graders, all of which is true. Everything in the ninth grade book is real and true. And it's only, it's only just a couple of pages, but um, you can pop in there. There's the, the, true, the true stuff. And then you can pop back out again. So I, I wanted to stay as close as possible to, the, um, to, to reality. And I, I wrote Twist before COVID, mm. but it, it, it just so happens that uh, today with, with, um, with COVID and climate change and, 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 and other scientific uh, controversies, political controversies, science is coming into question, right? I mean, you can go on YouTube and you can find videos about, right, is, is flat earth really real? Well, no, we don't live on a flat disc. We just don't. And there's a, there's a thousand reasons why we don't, but we don't. Um, and and my point is skepticism of science is a very real thing, unfortunately, in the United States in 2023. Right. And 
I wanted to write one of the things that I wanted to write in the book. Uh, one one of the kind of parallel plots, if you if you will, that's in the book is the fact of putting a human face to scientists. Mm -hmm. Right, my protagonist has a wife, and they're, and they're and they have you know marital problems. Um, he has a son. He has uh, uh, people in his laboratory. There's conflict with the people in his laboratory. You know, not everything's rosy. He's not a, a Superman. He's not a genius. He's not, you know, he's not like, um, it's it's not like Big Bang Theory where, you know, he's going to wind up getting a Nobel Prize at the end of the show. It's not like that. He's just a common guy who happens to have a knack for science. And um, because that's, that's, that's how I am. That's how every scientist I know, that's how we all are. We're just mm. common people that happen to have a knack for certain types of science. So I really wanted to get that into the literature, um, uh, into the science fiction literature and kind of bring in a, put a real face, so to speak, right. um, on, on, on a scientist. You've given us so much valuable information, not just on the inspiration with nature and the science and the, the toxicology and just, you know, we can find inspiration there, but you've also kind of given us these bits of knowledge about science fiction and finding that balance. And there's some realness there, right? Whether that's through the character, the science. And then um, I like how you talked about um, the science fiction and how it differs from fantasy and science fiction is close to like can this be real? Can we see this happening? And so you've given us wonderful tidbits of knowledge um, for those who are just as captivated as I am. Um, where can they find your books? How can they connect with you? Yeah, um, they can. Uh, my books, both Modern Poisons and Twist, are on are on Amazon, um, and they and I also have a website, um, uh, which is just my name: www.alanscolock. A L A N S kolok.com uh, and i think if you if well you'd have to use my name because there are a number of books that have twist in the title but um probably the easiest way to do it is just to go to amazon um and and access my books there but again um i do have my website as well fantastic and if y'all missed any of that it will be in the episode show notes so make sure you go and you check out out there um alan any words for folks who are just like you know, they're writing their science fiction novel and they're trying to strike that balance between the science and the fiction. How, in any strategies or tips to how to best blend these two worlds? Well, I think that the, um, I, I'm in a group right now in a small consortium of science fiction writers and we talk about these things all the time. And, you know, the, the, the organizer of this group keeps telling us, um, you're the driver. It's your book. You're the driver, and 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 if you think again of of something like the um, the 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 sliding scale between something like Star Wars, which is really uh, uh, fantastic, right? Because uh, for for a because if you just look at the bar scene where there's all those different different aliens, right? It's it's a it's a fair a very strong example of science fantasy. But then if you go to Jurassic Park, it's much it tries to be much closer to the science. So there's a gradient. Right. I would say to your to your re, to your uh, viewers, find the place on the gradient where you feel most comfortable. 
what where where you can tell the story that you want to tell uh and fall somewhere on that gradient and if you fall down very close to the fantasy end or or the uh game of throne ends that's totally fine and if you fall way up by the um by by the jurassic park end uh that's totally fine as well and just find where you can tell your story and try to tell a story as compelling as you possibly can alan you must be a fantastic teacher because you gave us really great illustrations that were easy to to follow in the subject that you can easily get lost in and so um listen i wish i could take a class <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank um, you. I, I appreciate that endorsement. Thanks very well, much. Absolutely. Um, Alan, any last words before I ask uh, my last question? Um, yeah, could I could I read one other little piece out of, uh, out of out of one one other piece out of Twist? Yeah, absolutely. It may take me a moment to find this. Here it is. Um, so uh, you've probably heard of of the idea of imposter syndrome, right? Where uh, someone is is maybe in a situation where they feel like they're um, maybe a little bit over their head uh, and they're going to work or they're doing something, they're playing a sport or they're trying to play piano or whatever, and they're thinking, I have no business doing this. I can't get this done. Well, I have two, two graduate students in my book, um, a young man and an, and, uh, who's in his first year of graduate school, and then an older woman who's getting close to graduating. And they have a conversation, and I just wanted to read, you, yeah. read, read this to you. Uh, and it's the, the young man who, who, who goes by the, the nickname of Smitty. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, he's talking, and he's talking to this older woman who's maybe four years older than him. And he says, do you ever get imposter syndrome? You know, the feeling that you don't really belong here and that someday someone is going to come in, call you out, then tell you to pack your bags and go home. Looking at the roster of incoming graduate students, many would have put Smitty at the top of the list for potential to wash out of the program. He was a first generation college student born in South Carolina to a rural family with no history of college education. He was soft spoken, intended to blend into the background, a trait that made him easy to overlook. Yet here he was, a quiet kid from the South, living in Iowa and enduring the freezing cold winter weather. No, Smitty, Tori said in response, not anymore. I don't get imposter syndrome. She continued, I did get it all the time prior to my comps. By comps, Tori meant her comprehensive exams, the killer of a test that she and all of her other science students had to take during their fourth semester at Iowa State. But after my comps, I looked around, compared my work with my peers, and I realized that I was doing just as well as any of them, maybe even a little better. Seriously, Smitty asked, you felt that way? Tori paused. She felt, she felt for him. Here he was, after just one semester on campus, conducting an important experiment and totally unsure of himself. Tori melted a little bit. Smitty, look, you belong here. That's what you're asking. Just trust yourself. You belong here. You all seem so much co more confident than me, he said. Um, Tori pulled out her cell phone. Take my number, Smitty. Your number? Yeah, my cell number. Take my number. Y you get those feelings? You feel like quitting? You call me first, okay? Smitty looked at her, said, okay. She, she paused for a moment, then com continued. It's okay to cry, Smitty. The comment hurt him, and he started to respond, look, I'm not going to cry. Tori overlooked his defensiveness and continued. 
It's okay to cry, to get angry, to get sad, to get, get depressed. It's okay to do whatever you need to do. Just don't quit. And for God's sake, if you're going to cry, use the bathroom. Don't do it in public. <laughs> Tori stood up and started packing her belongings into her bag. Just a, one other thing, Smitty, she said. Yeah? Swim like a duck, she said. A duck? Yeah, you know, Smitty. Common collected on the surface, but below the surface, sw paddle like hell. And so that's what I would tell your readers, right? Or your, your viewers. Um, you want to write a book? Be like a duck. Common collected on the outside. Paddle underneath the water as fast as you can. See where you get. Such a lovely scene and a nice way to end the episode. Thank you so much, um, Alan. Oh, Liz, it was my, it was my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Absolutely. But one last question, right? So sure. for y'all who listen, you know, I like to end the episode with some inspiration, um, a writing prompt, something uh, that my guest, it could be a word, it could be a phrase, but something that our guest says that we can use in a writing prompt or, or however you create, whether that is music, whether that's art or dance or whatever. So Alan, if you had to leave us with a word or a phrase that we can use in a prompt going forward for the rest of our day, what would it be? Go for, go for a walk, calm your mind, stop, close your eyes. What do you see? Ooh. And then write what you see. I like that. So listeners, this one's kind of an active prompt, right? So go out there, be in nature and see what comes up and to see what I get from uh, this prompt, stay tuned to the end of this episode for what I do with Alan's prompt. Thank you so much, Alan. Oh, my pleasure, Liz. Thank you. Snow solid like crystallized brown sugar, hard on the surface, but the center is soft crystals that melt under the heat of your fingers. Birds chirp, offering a morning song, a melody of harps and whispers of morning events. I stop to breathe in the frigid air that expels a cough from my lungs. How long has it been since I inhaled a cold that burns my nostrils and chills my ribcage? How long has it been since I last took a breath? How good it feels to be alive, I exhale, watching the puff of smoke from my words swirl around me. How good it is indeed to be alive, I think to myself, savoring the thought as I pull the watch from my coat pocket. I watch as the clock ticks, but it is not like the clock of this world spinning clockwise, edging forward for all eternity. No, this clock spins counter, ticking down to an expected end. Tick, 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 it goes as it counts down the 62 hours and 47 minutes I have left to remain alive. Once this clock strikes zero, it will take more than another Frankenstein-like jolt to bring me back to life. It will take a potion, an incantation, and a journey to Lucifer's last living descendant. <laughs>